Finnish Mutual, farming insurance experts. And welcome to episode nine of this first series of Farming Focus, the new podcast for farmers in the southwest of England, brought to you by Cornish Mutual. I'm your host, Peter Green. Throughout this series, we're encouraging farmers across Cornwall, Devon, Somerset and Dorset to ask how resilient their businesses are going forwards and to investigate how we can make them more resilient. Probably one of the biggest challenges UK agriculture has faced for several years is tuberculosis or TB in cattle. And it's certainly something that tests the resilience of all beef and dairy farmers here in the southwest. A breakdown on farm can lead to the removal of precious livestock with statutory compensation often falling short of the true value of the bloodlines lost. But the impact is often wider. Businesses that rely on trading cattle can be prevented from raising funds to cash flow their operation. Greater stock levels on farm put pressure on fodder. And sometimes the most acute impact can be on the mental health of the family that run that farm. Indeed, the recent survey in Wales found that 85% of farmers said TB negatively impacts their mental health. From the badger cull to movement restrictions and on-farm testing, much has been tried to prevent the spread of the disease, albeit with pretty limited results. So today we're going to ask what role vaccination of cattle can play in the TB debate and whether a full vaccination programme could make southwest farms more resilient. To discuss this, I'm joined by a vet and a farmer. Ralph Druin is a TB tester with Shepton Vets in Somerset. He's worked in a mixed, mainly farm practice in Somerset until dairy quotas arrived in 1984. He then joined the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, as it was then as a veterinary officer dealing with BSE, TB and foot and mouth disease. He's been with Shepton Vets since 2015. Max Seeley is a fourth generation dairy farmer from near Chippenham in Wiltshire. He's also a farm consultant with 25 years of experience in farm management. Ralph, welcome to Farming Focus. Thank you. Max, welcome to you. Great, thank you. So, Ralph, you experience the TB rollercoaster every working day. Can you take us through some of your experiences, please? Well, I had my first reactor in 1984, and I looked at it, and I didn't know what it was, quite simply. TB was such a rarity nearly 40 years ago that young assistants in practice we did the bulk of the testing, didn't see reactors, really. Sadly, that didn't last long, and I dealt with TB fairly consistently throughout my career until now over the last few years, I've also become a TB advisory scheme advisor. Right. Okay, that's that's. Um, some people will know that as TBAS. TBAS, yes. Okay. So, so when would you say TB started to become a, a really major issue that was affecting more farms than not almost across the southwest particularly well i i tell farmers that i've grown up with tb i say my first reactor was in 1984 i've been qualified yeah. five years since then following that period i just encountered generally speaking more and more tb as time went on yeah yeah so um, it was yeah. a gradual progression from from yes. 1984 yes. yeah okay yeah. 
Max, what's been your personal experience of TB? And I guess it'd be really interesting, perhaps for for our listeners who who maybe don't have cattle and haven't experienced a TB test day, to maybe share a bit about the the feelings and and and, and what, what's going on <laughs> internally on a TB test day, please. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I first met Ralph actually uh, when he came to our farm when we first uh, encountered issues with TB back in you know, late 1990s. I took over or came home in 1997 and really TB has, has, has been alongside my farming career ever since really. So, so right. what's that? 20, 27, 26, 27 years in, in farming without trying to sound too dramatic. We've basically been shut down with TB here for over 20 years on this Gosh. farm. So our personal situation is that I have probably not really missed a 60 day test uh, other than a few intervals, should we say, of maybe six months or so, when we when we when we would be being clear uh, over that period. In particular, since two thousand and sixteen, uh, we had a very big breakdown, December two thousand and sixteen, and from then through until sort of twenty twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty, uh, we lost uh, two hundred and sixty six cows uh, from this farm with. TB. Um, put that into context, at the time we were milking about 250, 260 cows. Uh, we're now milking 350 cows. Um, so it has literally dominated the way in which we've run this farm. So you've had to adapt your business model to t- to assume that you will have TB on the farm and it will be an issue there. Yes. Yeah, I've had to I've had to run my business plan, my expansion, uh, everything we do in terms of how we manage the cattle, all of, all of which has been centred around TB. Yeah, yeah, um, and I'm sure that will resonate actually with a lot of um, the cattle keepers that we mm, we have listening. Definitely. In the introduction, there I talked about um, the mental health impact. Um, what's what's been the impact for you personally? Talk talk us through how it feels when you've got that vet there and they they find that first reactor on on the reading day of a TB test. Um, well, I suppose we're quite a strong family, really, and we we believe in what we do, and we have. Uh, we, we've made a conscious decision that we're, we're in the dairy and the livestock farming industry, and this is this is just something that we have we have to work into alongside all of the other aspects of of that. But yeah, that the, the emotion of losing cows, particularly in big numbers, and, and the sort of the stress leading up to the test, day of the test, you know, yeah. going, going through the motions, kind of trying to keep uh, you know focused on the job while, whilst that's. Uh, going on Vic, vicky and i have been married for 27 years but we always say to, we've been married for 27 years but only 25 if you if you exclude the time that we've been tb testing uh together <laughs> so yeah yeah i, I think yeah, i think there there is an impact um yeah. what has also been important is the sort of support of the, of the farming community around each other because this isn't just our problem this yeah. isn't something that we're doing necessarily it's something that you know a lot of our friends and uh, neighbours and so on have experienced and how does that make you feel that, that, that there's that sort of empathy close by sure yeah it, 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 it's supportive and we learn from each other and there's lots of things that we've done um in terms of our involvement in wildlife control in terms of t-bass uh, biosecurity uh, that we can all learn you know from each other and put those things into place to manage the situation and to come out the other end of it Whilst we are still shut down with TB, you know, I sort of firmly believe that we have managed the situation. We we now manage TB on our farm in a way that's controllable, um, and, we, and we've got through the losses 
the big losses that we've had. So, um, yeah, knowing that there's some light at the end of the tunnel is, is, is the positive to come out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for that. Ralph, I briefly touched on some of the impacts of TB in the introduction. Could could you expand a little on why you feel TB is, is such an enormous challenge for UK agriculture as an industry, please? I think the reason we are in this situation, we find ourselves in today, with saying that there has been some improvement latterly, is that we're playing a catch-up situation for having failed to deal with the disease when it is at a more manageable level. Easy to say with hindsight, perhaps, but really until culling was introduced about 10 years ago, the emphasis on disease control was all on cattle, which um, finally when the government accepted the need for culling of wildlife, that they stated in writing that the disease TB couldn't be controlled if there was a wildlife host, it had to be tackled in the wildlife host as well. The adoption of that statement 10 years ago, I think, as near as can be, has um, led to what I believe is an improvement, certainly uh, figures for the number of cattle slaughtered over the last 12-month period has fallen by 21%. It's still 19,000 animals, an awful lot of cattle is put together, but it is a step in the right direction. Yeah. So you, you're talking there about, um, I think when Owen Patterson, Owen Patterson, I should say, launched the DEFRA 25-year bovine yes. tuberculosis eradication policy back in 2013. And and back then, 40% of the entire animal and plant health and welfare budget was was being spent on, on battling TB. Uh, and at that time, I think 28,000 um, otherwise healthy cattle were being culled. So you're absolutely right to say those, those numbers have come down, but... Um, your initial point there is really interesting. You know, perhaps if we'd had that conversation sooner, then um, we'd be in a better position now. And and Max, yeah. you you were nodding at that. Um, Max, we we talked there a little bit about how you've had to change your farming system. But before you had to change, before you did change your farming system, what what were the really big impacts on on you and your farming network of of these TB breakdowns? Uh, the, the simplest one basically is uh, loss of income and loss of cash flow because. Mm. We were losing cows in quite big numbers. Obviously, then you you know our job is to, our business is to sell milk, so uh, you're compensated somewhere just below the capital value of the cow. But obviously, there's no compensation for the income that that cow loses. So, yeah. as soon as you receive that compensation money, you're then eroding that, funding your cash flow and your overheads, particularly when milk prices are low, um, until such time as you can start buying in replacements. Cornish Mutual, farming insurance experts. And Max, we've heard there about the sort of impact that TB can have. But before we move on, this series is about resilience. So what would you say resilience means for you? I think resilience is about understanding the situation that you're in and having a workable strategy to deal with it. So in terms of the TB, one of the big issues with TB is that you're working with legislation around testing and removal, whereas actually what we've tried to do as a farm is to understand TB on our own farm and to deal with it in terms of animal movements, in terms of grouping of animals and getting that sort of message through. So, But it's difficult when you're under you're under the control of, of legislation. So, yeah, to, you know, to be resilient means to be able to have a plan that covers the eventualities 
And certainly in, in terms of the TB, there's the wildlife situation. There's also TB endemic within herds. So it's understanding what sort of TB we have and then being able to deal with it. That's really interesting because actually um, the two things I'd like to pull out there, I think a lot, a lot of farmers that I've spoken to feel that TB is something which happens to them, but actually yeah. you're talking about being positive and active in combating it. And actually that's what government policy is moving more towards. They're not talking about there being one silver bullet. Government are now talking about looking at epidemiology locally and seeing what tactics they can take to to fight tb in different areas that's interesting that that's uh something which, which resonates throughout discussion ralph what does a farm business that is resilient to tb look like to you well the problem with tb is that it's unpredictable max has spoken about his losses over the years maybe he's been able to identify a pattern of how losses might be seen but It's the unpredictability of a TB breakdown which makes resilience difficult. It's a question of surviving a breakdown. And my thoughts, which haven't always gone down well with dairy farmers, is the biggest problem they have, apart from the loss of milk through lack of compensation for consequential losses, is the beef calves, whether they're black and white bull calves with low value or continentals with a higher value. My feeling would be to rear those animals until such a time as restrictions are lifted and to sell them at the optimum time after that. Now, when I say that to clients, they say they're in the business of producing milk. They're not beef farmers, so they don't want to do it. But Mm -hmm. to my mind, that's what I would encourage a dairy farmer to do. Cornish Mutual, farming insurance experts, doing what is right for you every day. Sticking with you, Ralph, what what role do you think vaccination of cattle can play in fighting back against TB? Well, the term silver bullet was mentioned earlier. It'd be wrong to think of cattle vaccination as a silver bullet because there are other things that farmers can do, other tools that farmers can use alongside TB vaccination. It's difficult to know at the moment, or it's not known at the moment, quite how cattle vaccination will roll out. So there may be things I say now, which in two years' time would seem inappropriate. Biosecurity is a word that's banded about. Probably never heard of it 20-odd years ago. Now everybody uses it. But there are things that farmers can do to reduce the TB risk on their farms. And if TB is considered to be a disease like any other disease, Yoni's disease, BVD, Lepto, whatever else you want to mention, if it's approached in that direction, as opposed to thinking, woe is me, I've got a TB breakdown, there's nothing I can do. Mm. I can go on to some farms, and I can see why they have a TB breakdown. Okay. Could you expand on that a little bit? So obviously not, not thinking about any specific farms, but generally what are some of the things, what are some of the areas where cattle farmers could improve their biosecurity, for example? I'm surprised sometimes how naive some farmers can be about the level of badger activity on their farms. 
Now, obviously, they're busy people. They can't know every inch of their ground, but they seem to be unaware of the presence of badger latrines, holes in the ground with soft poo, hard poo in it, depending on the time of year, made by badgers. Nothing else really makes those holes. And when you go around after a breakdown, you see, well, look, you've got badger latrines in the middle of your grazing field. It's hardly surprising you've had a breakdown in your cows or whatever group of animals were there. So I think there's one thing is to be, if they had the time, to enjoy a walk around the farm, perhaps the perimeter around the woodlands. Southwest is full of permanent hedgerows, good places for badger latrines. Um, look around those. Fence those areas off with a single strand of electric wire. Keep the cows back away from there. Young stock, don't feed young stock on the ground or in a trough on the ground. If you've got to feed them, invest in some raised feeders. I advised one client who'd been under restrictions for five years to buy some raised feeders because he had a problem in a certain where he grazed one group of heifers. And lo and behold, he passed his six-month test two weeks ago. The next time around, yeah. Um, Please just punch. So there are there are success stories. Yeah, Max. Um, Ralph's given us you know a couple of few things there that farmers can do. Um, how do you feel hearing that? Are those do they seem practical? Do you do any of those on your farm? Yeah, absolutely. I think that those are all those are all good measures. I think we've all through the wildlife control the companies we formed and the, and the information we've been able to spread amongst farming in terms of what best practice was. I certainly learned a huge amount when the culling started about badger activity on my farm, um, things that I just didn't really know and appreciate before that. So watching the tracks, set monitoring, latrines, all of that sort of thing. I was very naive to that situation. And, and at that time, you know, we're sort of going back, what is it, seven, seven or eight years or whatever now, it just just wasn't really educated in those in what was going on so i think you know that sort of um flow of information has been really really useful um and i never saw wildlife control about it was all about understanding the population getting the population down to a a a manageable level because effectively tb is a disease of overpopulation and then yeah some a lot of the things that, that we need to do on the farm change of our management practices that ralph mentioned i'd also include things like making sure that the water troughs, the badgers can't access the water troughs, yeah. um, limiting the access to feed. It is difficult because yeah. you know, we're we're an autumn calving grazing herd. You know, our, our cows graze from February to September. Um, you know, it's quite difficult to actually keep wildlife and cows separate. But if you understand where the risks are and you can manage them, then that's the way forward. It was really interesting for me to hear um, Ralph talking about a single strand of electric fence around a badger latrine because I've had um, one of the TB advisory service visits and that's exactly um, one of the pieces, one of the several pieces of of good advice that I had. And you sort of think, well, a badger's going to go under that. Yeah, of course they are. That's not the point. The point is that you're keeping your cattle away from the highest risk area. You're not necessarily trying to um, avoid all contact because that would be really, really difficult. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the risk and we're trying to manage those risks. So another thing that we did, we recently had some new doors put on a, a cattle shed. So we were looking at all of the gaps under those doors and making sure that they're three inches or less so that we're you know not, not getting any livestock into the sheds. We're looking at our feed face and we're making sure 
sure that um, if if there's anywhere that we think we might be feeding concentrates, that we can't get any wildlife coming in and coming up to the shed. So there are things that can be done. And I think it comes back to this point about not feeling like this is passively something which happens to us and that we can do some small things against it. And, and you know, we've talked about vaccination briefly, but it'd be good to to get back onto that. Max, as a farmer, what's what's your take on the usefulness of cattle vaccination as a tool against TB? It's got to have a role in the future. I mean, we use vaccination for a huge number of diseases on our, you know, in our working environment, don't we? You know, pneumonia, we're actually clear of BVD, we're vaccinated against IBR. So uh, we vaccinate against blackleg here. So we, we vaccination is a part of, of a disease control strategy. It obviously has some quite big implications in terms of the marketing of cattle from vaccinated and unvaccinated herds. It has implications in terms of how many herds would you get vaccinated and what you would need to do to build up that population immunity. But I, I do feel that if we can do that and build up that resistance in the population, then that is sort of part of that long-term strategy you control the vectors you control the disease and then then you move to a a vaccinated situation and ultimately uh, i suppose being able to to weed out animals that are transmitting tb to get to a free status Um, yeah yeah understood and and so you just alluded to it there um i guess you know we've just been through uh covid and actually in order to stop the spread it wasn't about making sure that covid was completely eliminated um from the whole population it was just about stopping the, the reproduction rate uh, effectively yeah. wasn't it and i guess you yeah, know that's something that we're, we're looking to do here with tb mm. um ralph how how would a farm vaccination program actually work what would the logistics be and, and i guess it'd be quite interesting to understand how we differentiate between an animal that's been vaccinated and one which is positive for tb as a reactor Right. So in terms of this, we're talking or I'm talking about the unknown generalities of it. The vaccination will be given to animals aged over two weeks of age. Who pays for that is undecided at the moment. At a meeting at the local market 18 months ago, it was suggested that farmers might be prepared to pay six pounds a head for the vaccine. And they would expect their local vet techs to administer the vaccine. Um, there were a couple of other options, one of which was government official. They didn't like that too much. And another one was replicating the bureaucracy of the coal companies, which no doubt you'll all be familiar with, uh, how difficult that was to do. So there's the idea that the vaccine will be administered. Some people at the meeting hoped if the vaccine was administered, there'd be no need for testing of cattle. But there would still be a skin test for vaccinated cattle, which would be one injection. And the nature of the vaccine would be that it would clearly differentiate between infected animals and vaccinated animals. And that has been the limiting factor because it's been known for over 100 years that the bcg vaccine used in humans five billion doses worldwide to protect the human population against tb has been effective in preventing or reducing the risk of tb in cattle the problem has been finding some means of differentiating between naturally infected animals and vaccinated animals now with the diva test 
DIVA as it's abbreviated to. So that's detecting infected. Detection of infected amongst vaccinated animals. Mm-hmm. That has been the breakthrough which has come in. There's been plenty of evidence historically in the land in the last 25 years to show that the BCG vaccine in cattle would protect some of the cattle vaccinated. So in terms of that, there are trials going on at the moment outside our area involving about a thousand animals. Now, those results are supposed to be being made now. So we are talking about things as they happen. And so there is some difficulty, say, in two years' time, somebody might listen to this and think, oh, completely wrong on on that. (laughs) So I think there's going to be, somehow or other, there will be some herd owners who will opt for BCG vaccination of their cattle. And the advantage of that is it will reduce the risk of a TB breakdown amongst their herd. Unfortunately, not all vaccinated animals will be protected against TB. Max has spoken about um, using blackleg vaccine on his farm. Well, with BCG vaccine, it fully protects about 30% of animals, partially protects another 30%, and doesn't do anything for the other 40%, which is where TBAS, biosecurity, having an attitude of this is a disease like any other disease, we can tackle it by securing our feed stores, the water troughs, as Max said, putting a fence around the badger set so you don't see what I saw earlier in the year was a badger set in the ground surrounded by cow hoof prints. A farmer who vaccinated in a high-risk area and adopting good TB biosecurity should have a degree of optimism over and above the present trend we have in fewer numbers of animals being slaughtered, that they'll have a clear test. And as that rolls out, one of the benefits of the vaccination is it reduces the amount of infection an infected animal excretes. So that will lead to a reduced level of infection to cohorts in the herd, to wildlife, if you want to talk about that, so that we may return to a position of far fewer reactors than we currently have. So it it has its benefits, but it does require, I was going to use the word goodwill, on the behalf of farmers to do their bit to protect their herd from what the vaccine doesn't protect. Yeah, other risk factors. Yeah, so it's got to be a multi-pronged approach, which which is is what we're hearing. All these things are. Yeah, what we're hearing from government, and and it's ringing true with what you said there. Cornish Mutual, farming insurance experts. We've heard about the limitations of a vaccination strategy, but we we often hear the question, why can't they vaccinate badgers? You know, why can't the wildlife pool be vaccinated? What do you say to that? Well, of course, we can vaccinate the badgers now. It's possible to obtain a license. A similar sort of vaccine is used, BCG again. It involves, for those of you that participated in the cull, very similar procedures of baiting badgers, trapping them, vaccinating them, marking them and releasing them. It's suggested that they vaccinate for three or four years because for four years, 
because the average lifespan of a badger is four years. So starting at year naught, there'll be some infected badgers about. If those are caught and vaccinated, the vaccine should reduce the amount of infection that they excrete. If a healthy badger is caught and vaccinated, the vaccine will protect that badger for longer against TB than if it hadn't been vaccinated. So you're leading to a reduction in the amount of wildlife infection. Plus, there's a knock-on effect of protecting cubs as well, because they're not being exposed to parental TB, for one right. better term. So that should be leading to a lower challenge to cattle. But we don't have the evidence to show that at the moment. So, Max, if we don't get on top of the disease, what's the potential impact for the industry going forwards? If we don't get on top of the disease, which I very much hope we will. And I think I think with the advice and with the effect of, of badger culling and more understanding of the epidemiology of the disease, we we do stand a chance of getting on top of it. And then with, with the potential rollout of vaccination, we can move to a situation where, where we can control it. But I mean, the, the long, the, the short answer to your question is that if we if we don't get on top of it, we will just see less and less cattle and less and less dairy farmers, which ultimately reduces the economic viability of the countryside. Because you get a lot of people that shut down with TB for a very very long time for whatever reason they get clear of TB, have a, clear, have a couple of clear tests, and they think right, that's that's it. I'm selling the cows. The next generation coming in, I mean, I'm very lucky my son's come home to farm with me, but uh, the next generation, if they see that as being your lifestyle shut down with TB the whole time, they're saying, well, we don't want to farm like that. Thanks, mum and dad. So this it, it affects succession on farms. It affects investment decisions. So I think apart from the community and the sort of um, the emotional aspect of it, you know, the financial viability of a cattle industry constantly battling with TB would, would, would just be a... It would be a measured and slow decline because, as we said earlier, us we're pretty resilient as farmers. We keep going uh, for a long time, but you know you can you can see it happening around you. So you're confident that your farm and your your neighbours' farms and the southwest will get free of TB in the future. Um, free of TB, I'd like to think so in my in my lifetime. Um, fairly optimistic sort of person. Uh, I think that the reality is we're moving to a more controlled situation where we accept responsibility for the disease more ability to work with AFA to manage it more managing it as an on-farm disease rather than just as a matter of legislation we're going to kind of hold the numbers like Ralph says we I think we've come from sort of 30,000 cows to 19,000 cattle being slaughtered a year if we could keep reducing that I mean I always think that 25-year strategy was not called a 25-year strategy for nothing was it that's a I mean 25 years is a generation isn't it you know that's yeah. A lifetime of, of eradication and interestingly we've heard at the beginning of this podcast that 25 years ago really was was when this started to be a real issue it was yeah. around before then as, as ralph said but actually it's only really been a major issue for for, that, for a generation but it's obviously going to take a generation to, to get rid of a problem that's taken a generation to build yeah okay that's that's almost all we've got time for today but before we finish the episode it's time for our showstoppers so these are three key points that um, our listeners might like to take away from today's podcast it's never easy to pull these together but i think 
it feels like um, the discussion can be broken down into kind of a you know past, present, and future almost. So the past refers to people who have had breakdowns on their farms, and I think the important message is that you know they're not alone. There is a lot of people that are going through this. Um, at any one time over the last fifteen years, up to ten percent of the cattle in England and Wales have been under TB restrictions, which is a huge amount. Um, so speak to people about it and, and how it makes you feel, you know, your family, obviously, perhaps your neighbours, certainly your vet. Ralph's spoken to us earlier about the sensitivity that vets have to exhibit. And I'm sure, um, and I know my personal experience has been universally positive and, and I'm sure Max, yours has too, but vets do feel this and they know what it's like. So don't be afraid to, to talk to them about it. But there's other organisations like the Farming Community Network, Rabbi, Farmwell. Um, there are people who will listen and you're not you're not in this on your own. So what can we do right now? Well, there's lots of small things that can be done, but we, we talked about understanding the situation. And as we've said, it's important to, to understand that we're not helpless. There is a strategy you know, one of the most powerful conversa- conversations I had about TB was with one of my vets who said um, that the key message that they were trying to communicate was that it's not something that just happens. We don't have to just accept it, as we've said. There are small measures that can be taken to improve biosecurity that can can really positively impact a, an individual farm's TB status. And to that end, we talked briefly about TBAS, uh, TBAS, but I couldn't recommend enough that people go to tbas.org.uk have a look around the website there's lots of practical ideas there Um, there's contact details the advice is free and they really really understand the issues so um, do get in touch with with uh, the good people at tbas and then looking forward I think we can all agree that this isn't about one silver bullet, as we said at the beginning. It's about this multi-factor control system and probably looking quite locally and seeing how the disease is is moving locally. You know, it's about looking at your feed stores, your troughs, fencing off sets, fencing off latrines. Um, there's a range of measures and we need to, to have different interventions um, which will be appropriate in different places. I recognise that talking about the impact of TB in cattle can be uh, a pretty heavy subject. Um, so let's lighten the mood with our closing question. Um, if you will, imagine a wonderful cream tea laid out before you. Scones spread with jam first and then cream. And then there's scones spread with cream before jam. The big question, which one would you choose? Is it jam first or cream first? Ralph. Being a pragmatic fellow, I choose the nearest one. <laughs> Great answer. We've not heard that one before. I like that. Okay, Max, how about you? Oh, uh, wow. Um, top that. Uh, I, might, I may be a Wiltshire farmer, but I went to Seal Hain College in Devon, so there literally can only be one answer to that question. <laughs> okay, so you're a cream first, Max. <laughs> There it is. Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you very much to uh, both of you, uh, to Ralph Druin and to Max Seeley for joining us on today's episode. Next time for our final episode in this run, we're going to take a look back across the series and reflect on some of the learning points. But before we go, I've got two favours to ask if you've enjoyed the show. The first is, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, but also give us a rating and a review. We've got some lovely ratings already, but the more we get, the more people will find out about the podcast. 
Secondly, please mention the podcast to three other people this week. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the word about it. So if you're enjoying it, please talk to anyone in your network who lives or works in the countryside about us. We really want to get the conversation started. You can also contact us on X or Twitter, Instagram or Facebook using the handle at Cornish Mutual and let us know what you thought of the episode. Please see the show notes for more information on today's episode, including the link to our podcast disclaimer. You've been listening to Farming Focus brought to you by Cornish Mutual. I've been Peter Green. And until next time, it's goodbye from me and everyone in the Cornish Mutual podcast team. Cornish Mutual, farming insurance experts.